Hey, Friday Night Lights fans. It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful co-hosts, me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen, and me, Mae Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is available now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose! Did you know that your natural ability to break down food declines with age because your body produces fewer of the usual enzymes that you're, say, born with on the brush border of your gut? Enzymes, of course, are the enzymes responsible for helping digest the food. Fewer enzymes means more difficulty digesting food. This is why you may experience some digestion issues, some symptoms after a good meal. Your body just doesn't have enough of the enzymes to get the job done. Supplementing with a high-quality enzyme such as Masszyme by Optimizer is an interesting idea. It's a best-in-class supplement loaded with full-spectrum enzymes for digesting protein, starches, sugars, fibers, and fats. Taking Masszymes daily helps top off your enzyme levels replacing the enzyme your body is no longer producing, which means you should be able to improve your digestion. Delicious foods, digest them more quickly and easily without symptoms. After taking Masszymes, you may notice that you no longer feel bloated after meals. And those with the so-called leaky gut syndrome, there's some thought that Masszymes could reduce gut irritation and again help absorb. If you want freedom from your food, especially during the holiday season, try Masszymes risk-free and experience for yourself the magic of the high-quality enzyme supplementation. For exclusive offer for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners, just go to masszymes.com slash Drew, just like it sounds, M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S, and make sure to enter that coupon code Dr. Drew 10 to receive 10% discount off your order. Again, that is masszymes.com forward slash Drew. Here we go. You ready? Uh, yes. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. We appreciate you supporting us and supporting this pod. We've had some great guests, have we not? And today is no exception. It is Anna Kachian. The Patreon Red Scare Podcast is where you should go if you want to she, listen to she and her partner. That's uh, co-hosted by Dasha Again, I, I, these Russian names, Nekrasova. <laughs> Nekrasova uh, sounds a little weirdly uh, like some some reference to dying people. Yeah, um, they are We've very popular. They very kindly had me on their podcast, and uh, people were very happy that I was there. And thank you for that. It was really a good experience, and uh, your fans are amazing. Uh, so hopefully, we can get some of them over here. But it's a, it's a great podcast, and you have a, a, a following of, of devoted devoted supporters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We sure do. I don't know if you want any of my supporters, but <laughs> no, it's it's all good. They certainly were nicer than many of mine. Frankly, oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you can follow Anna. Is it Anna or Anna? Um, either one, but let's go with Anna, Anna. for uh, convenience. Okay. Uh, the Twitter and Instagram is at Anna. Kachian, which is K-H-A-C-H-I-Y-A-N. She immigrated from Moscow in uh, 1985. She is currently studying at NYU, Master's in Art History, which fascinates me. She has a history undergraduate degree in economics. And uh, 
I got a lot of interesting things I want to talk to you about. Uh, do you have any okay. questions for me before I get going? I just want to um, fact check some stuff. I came. I was born in 1985, and I came to the United States in 1990. And I'm also a um, dropout of the NYU Art History PhD program. Got so it. I can't claim to be a student currently. So, so you got your master's, but didn't get your PhD. Uh, yep. Okay, got it. And what area of art were you into? Um, well, originally I was into uh, Silver Age Russian portraiture, and then I kind of moved into architecture. And then uh, my narcissistic defenses militated to convince me that this was probably not the right life path. That's when you thought a career in, in podcasting is where you belong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so. It's, it's, I did not know you were coming in today, and I just finished a, a, like a 20-minute conversation with a friend of mine about Peter the Great. And so mm-hmm. R- Russia is on people's minds these days. And, and yeah, I, sure I'm, is. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you can help the stupid American understand what, what's going on here. Uh, but let's, let's sort of roll back in Russian history a little bit and help people understand that uh, – if if I understand my history correctly, the reason regions like the Ukraine and the Crimea were so important <clears throat> is because the the very soul of the Russian country really kind of dials back really kind of to Peter the Great. I mean, things were pretty mm-hmm. chaotic before that. And there was a lot of violence and extreme, you know, warlords yeah. and stuff. And Peter the Great came in and, to again, to make a cartoon out of this, essentially said, hey, that Louis XIV guy, I like what he's got. That guy's got his mm-hmm. shit together. We need a Versailles, and I'm going to build one here. And all you other assholes that I give money to, all you other aristocrats, you're going to build your castles around me. And I'm all. not only do I like Versailles, but I like Venice, Italy. And I'm going to rebuild Venice, Italy on this swamp here, and we're going to call it St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. Is that about get, um, get the history right? Yeah, and Peter the Great was seen as a great modernizer and westernizer. I'm going to really have to fire up my Wikipedia because my um, knowledge of Russian history is uh, probably more iffy than well, yours. It's, it's or okay. It's, uh, no, it's, I, thought, yeah, I, I doubt thought it. We were here to talk about narcissism. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get I, there. I'm, I'm borderline. We'll get to that because I know that's stuff you like talking about. But first, you got to yes. indulge me with my stuff. Okay. Uh, uh, it is. Um, and so, but the reason I bring him up is he was, in terms of you know, one of his great modernizing influences was a navy, and the Crimea mm-hmm. was a critical piece in that whole expansion mm-hmm. and, and modernization, and Ukraine figured into that. And so, this is a very important area in the sort of identity and soul of the Russian nation. Is that is that accurate? Yes, um, I think um, strategically and demographically, and it's you know seen as as uh, the breadbasket of Russia. That region produces a lot of the fertilizer. A lot of the natural resources come from there. Yeah, and and I think I told you when I when I was on your show that I, I was raised that I was Russian, but it turned out I was Ukrainian. And you were just told you were Russian, you know? <laughs> you and me both, yeah. Yeah. Are you Ukrainian also? Well, as a matter of fact, well, I just did a, a DNA test on 23andMe because I was um, mimetically copying Dasha, who just got hers back. And, um, you know, sure enough, there were no big surprises. And I was um, uh, 12.8% Ashkenazi. But one of the things that 23andMe does that Ancestry.com doesn't, for example, it'll it'll break down your ancestry into 
the various regions yeah. that it comes from. Yeah. The, the, the oblasts or administrative regions. And um, I really have to take the L, as I said on my podcast, because I was um, under the impression that, that my Jews were high German Jews, uh, medical doctors who lived um, outside of the pale of settlement within the city walls itself. And it turns out that they're mere lowly Ukrainian and Polish peasants, just like everyone else. Not, not Belarusian? A little bit, but yeah. I stand humbled and corrected. Yeah. So I, I always knew that I came from a long line of uh, mm-hmm. surf number one, surf number two, peasant three. <laughs> it just, it just, it went on for many generations. But, but most people with Ashkenazi heritage have, because uh, they were only able to survive in Belarus. There was a Duke of Belarus right. that allowed them to come in there and, and sort of thrive. But once it, they panned out to the rest of Russia, it was like you will be a peasant, and that's where you, that's where you stay. And yeah. yeah, I have the same background. And and the other thing, I forget whether it's Ancestry or 23andMe, they also show the diasporas. They show how people mm-hmm. immigrated. And there was a huge diaspora from that region at the turn of the century as the uh, as the revolution took, took form. Right. Uh, and I know my own grandmother used to talk about the bandits. And mm-hmm. you could never get her to define – she didn't know what that was, whether it was Cossacks or czarist, or Mensheviks, or Bolsheviks, or just plain old criminals. They would roll right. through and just take things apart. They and, would raid the villages. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so Fiddler on the Roof had a very striking kind of uh, uh, historical accuracy as it pertains to my own family's past. <clears throat> you don't know. Yeah, we, if we you have know so it, much in common. My mom, my mom has this kind of a sarcastic saying that uh, um you know everyone every jew in america has a russian grip from the pale <laughs> that's really funny uh so so given all that history it, should we as americans be more sensitive to what's going on there or try try to perceive you know a russian sort of perspective on this or is it as outrageous as the ukrainians feel it is I, i'm just trying to I don't, I don't have an opinion i'm just trying to make sure my perspective is you know, adjusted to, to the, the historical context. Okay, well, I'm I'm currently drinking um, some pastis that Asha kindly brought over for me from France because Russians are all raging Francophiles uh, who like were French, um, and I was hoping that um, I, we could get to the Russian Ukrainian hot takes like toward the end of the podcast when I was uh, nice and see, but. Yeah, I mean, I think there. I would caution against um, the aggressively binaristic view of this conflict. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think nowadays, America, if you express um, any sense of like uh, understanding for why Russia would pursue such a course of action, you're automatically seen as like a, a Putin simp, Putin supporter. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there is obviously a, a very rational uh, geopolitical grounds for their invasion. But I think, as I said to you on our podcast, this is really a lose-lose situation yeah. for the Ukraine, no matter um, what the outcome is, and, and whether I, they win or yeah, lose this and, conflict. And, yeah, and I think I, I'm going to say, I think I followed with lose-lose for the world, really. 
it's just a terrible right, yeah. you know, it's just a horrible situation but but you know we certainly America certainly contributed to the the you know the elements and my fear is that this thing is going to really escalate that that's my deepest fear and then then who do we blame and that, there's going to be a lot of blame blame gaming going on but you can kind mm-hmm. of see things escalating in ways that are just n- not okay and if we well if, you know look on the bright side we Anyone. You you broke the up there. I, did, I didn't hear it. Look on the bright side. The bright side got completely just, taken away. Oh, no, no. I just said, I, 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 oh, I said to, the silver lining is that we might not be around to blame anyone. Oh, God. So thanks. Okay. Well, that's a Russian <laughs> attitude. That, that I'm familiar with that stuff. That, that nihilism. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. we suffer, we suffer. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, let's, uh, again, the, the uh, podcast is Red Scare Podcast. You can get it on Patreon. Uh, I recommend it most highly. And let's talk a little bit about narcissism and borderline disorder because I know that's something you think a lot about. How did you get so interested in that topic? Um, well, I think I, I mentioned to you that um, when I was a grad student, at professors assigned a reading by Christopher Lash, his very famous essay. Tell me again the story about the Lashian uh, disciple because we only got a piece of that. Oh, right. Yeah. So I followed the breadcrumbs from Lash to a guy called The Last Psychiatrist, who was um, an anonymous blogger um, and and an actually practicing psychiatrist tied to a major medical institution here in the United States who was doxxed and had to um, give up writing for a while, you know, out of, you know, respect and consideration for his patients, reemerged um a couple of years ago with a very large and unwieldy tome called Sadly Porn. And um, he he was a guy who basically took Lash's vernacular and, and put it in the a kind of blogging social media language. And, and there's another guy who I've been reading lately, my buddy, who goes by the name of Second City Bureaucrat on uh, social media. He has a Substack where he applies, um, you know, Lash's psychoanalytic theories to the broader sociological phenomenon of group narcissism, which is also what I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, as, as we speak, my, my laptop is currently being propped up by uh, Otto Pernberg's seminal 1975 text, Borderline Conditions and Pathological Narcissism. Mm-hmm. Everybody's basically borrowing from Pernberg. Kind of. Uh, I mean, Kernberg is is in a line. Have you ever read Stephen A. Mitchell's work? I have not. He has a book uh, that's called Psychoanalytic uh, Object Relations and Psychoanalytic Theory, mm-hmm. and and he takes the entire evolution of psychological psychiatric thought from drive theory, which is Freud, all the way up to Kernberg. Right. And when you see him in context, Kernberg, it's very interesting. It's really – if you're interested in that stuff, it's a very readable book and it will give you a sense of the evolution of thought. And each each step along the way, there are insights. There are little <laughs> insights that you will ring true for you. But the whole story doesn't come clear really until attachment theory starts to kick, kick in and interpersonal neurobiology which Stephen A. Mitchell died before that all started happening. Uh-huh. But he gets you right there. He gets you right to that point. It's, it's, it's a really very interesting book. So I, I recommend that highly to you. It's not, it's not to the average person. Somebody's got to be really into this stuff. 
and right. and in terms of that psychiatrist that was doxed, why was he doxed? Um, I I don't. I'm not fully familiar with the backstory. I'm assuming because some haters and losers on the internet decided to get to the bottom of things and for for, um, for what bottom of things? What if he said that anybody could take it would be concerned about? Well, well, I think he had a very um a combative and c- confrontational tone. He was basically a provocateur. And- and wrote in a much more oblique and less explanatory way than Lash that mm. might might have made certain people feel attacked. Crazy. So let's talk about group narcissism, right? I, I explained to you, I think, on your podcast, if I recall correctly, that I, I saw it happen in real time. I, I saw right. it happen. I was working in a psychiatric hospital. I arrived there in 1985. There's all kinds of psychopathology and the, the personality pathologies are A, B, and C. They're all over the place. And towards the end of the 80s, I noticed that cluster B, the narcissistic disorders, start mm-hmm. to predominate. And in the 90s, that's it. That's all. That's it. There was never – I rarely a, a dependent would come along, come along. I mean I can only think of one that I saw because it caught my eye. I was like, whoa, that's a dependent personality disorder, not, not a narcissist. Amazing. Right. Amazing. And it was an old lady. It was an old lady been around for a long time and I thought, oh, OK. Well, she's 85 and so she's part of that old, that old cohort. But everybody else, you know, everybody under 50, narcissist, borderline psychopath or sociopath, borderline uh, narcissist, and an occasional histrionic. And right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that tracks. Yeah. And that's what that's what happened. That's just, and I, it caught my attention. And I thought, and at the time I was doing a radio program where I was talking to kids every night, you know, 30 or Mm -hmm. 40 kids a night. And every single one of them was regaling us with their dysfunctional relationships grown out of Mm -hmm. childhood trauma. And every one of them had these extraordinary – particularly sexual abuse was out of control in the 80s and 90s. Right. I I think – Well, it's interesting because we just did an episode addressing that big viral New York Times article that came out uh, I think earlier this week about atypical anorexia. Um, which is, you know, when people present with all the classical symptoms of anorexia with the exception of extreme thinness. Mm. So we're talking about people who are obese, often morbidly obese, um, and who are still being identified or increasingly being identified by the medical profession as um, anorexics, right? Mm. And my my kind of uh, suspicion there is that a lot of them probably were molested as as young people as children um and it's it's very interesting in the borderline disorders that you see basically the the same clinical background Mm -hmm. um you know the the narcissists like very shallow emotional core and impoverished inner life are are directly tied to his childhood experience of oh, like of parents who are absent, unavailable and like directly or indirectly aggressive. And who, right. who I think crucially um, one of them substitutes vicarious mi- micromanagement and helicopter parenting for actual intimacy and affection that every child Correct. craves. Correct. And, and, and often that, that helicoptering in my experience for the male narcissist particularly includes um, sort of a, an amplification of the child's uh, abilities. 
you know, th- th- that's the kid that gets in the fight in the sandbox, and the mom goes, "No, no, no, that's your child. Your child did it first. So my my boy's perfect." And th- the child learns very quickly that he could get away with everything with that mom lurking around. Right. It's like the golden child syndrome, yeah. which creates a very um, toxic environment because it trains the child to uh you know basically create this omnipotent idealized version of himself that he can't hope to live up to in reality well and so all of his you know mental activities and defense mechanisms are basically militated right uh, against any confrontation with reality Oh, yeah, particularly as it pertains to uh, evoking reality testing or evoking shame. Mm-hmm. They, they fight. They, they absolutely reject that and they, and they respond with something called narcissistic rage. I, right. I, the golden child thing, I, I, it's not quite uh, – I'll be careful with that construct because there also is things like the drama of the gifted child, right, which is slightly yeah, different. Yeah, which Dasha mentioned. Yeah. yeah, and that's more on the codependency spectrum, which is sort of mm-hmm. covert narcissism, if that makes sense. It, it's right. the that child is sort of subjugating his or her primary emotions to the needs of others and performing for yes. others, as opposed to getting from others. You know, this this inflated sense of what they need. Yeah, as opposed to I guess traditional or pathological narcissism, where the person has a very exploitative and parasitic yeah. Yeah. relationship yeah. to others. Yeah. And I think with these kind of children, though, um, things like discipline and structure are, are rarely imposed, and when they are. They are imposed in a very arbitrary and incoherent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. way. So, sure. so the boundaries between oneself and reality are perennially blurred. Um, and you'll have to excuse me because, by the way, I'm I'm not an expert. Certainly not a doctor. I have uh, no uh, qualifications to speak on this whatsoever. Except I'm doing the narcissist self deprecate self depreciation bit. <laughs> I have no qualifications to speak on this outside of like. A, an earnest amateur enthusiasm. Well, but but there's there is a clinical uh, understanding of these conditions, and then there's a in- intellectual or academic understanding of them, right. and even a philosophical understanding of them. And popular, you, yeah. And you you well, that's a that's just an inaccurate thing. But but you are you are well within your uh, in your your lane to. Learn everything you can about this. You're not saying, mm-hmm. I understand, I know what this feels like, I know it when it comes in the room, I know what to do for it. You're saying, I'm right. trying to understand this construct. I'm seeing it all over the place. Christopher Lash warned me that this was coming and it came. I right. want to understand it better. And and I, I completely – I have no discomfort at all with people doing that. I, I have discomfort when people go – uh, you know, you're a narcissist, and here's what you need to do. Well, well, now that's now you're into something else. Well, uh, right, yeah. And, and, and I mean, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I would say all of these things have um, adaptive no. advantages, right? I mean, there there's a reason right. humans evolved these conditions, and there's one day we'll understand the reason we evolved in this direction at this particular time. And, I, and that's one of the things that fascinates me. But go ahead, you were going to ask a question. We'll get back to that. I have a couple of questions, but I guess what I'm interested in doing is using kind of psychoanalytic terminology or theory to get at some broader sociological trends or tendencies with 
reference to group psychology. Yes. So in other words, when I talk about narcissism or borderline, I'm using these terms as like a metaphor for widespread uh, cultural or social phenomenon. Agreed. Um, Agreed. And I, I'm not only describing the group psychology of our time, but also the dominant or representative personality type of our time. Yep. You mentioned the rise of cluster B personality disorders. Marxists cease to call this the socially mandatory character. And what I'm not doing very explicitly is using these terms to like casually diagnose individuals no, no, based no, 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 on no. whether yeah. I personally like yeah. them or not. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's where it goes off the rail completely. So, so let's talk and about I, that. But let's talk about the sociological, right. the social historical context. That's what I'm fascinated with, both the evolutionary piece and the socio historical. So, one of the things I started obsessing about when I wrote my book on narcissism was where everything happens. You know, everything has happened. <laughs> there's, there's nothing. There's really very little new that humans go through, at least in terms of our mm-hmm. our beingness. Uh, and so, where do you think this has happened before, when the predominant personality style in a given culture has become cluster B ish? I don't know that we have any precedents. Um, I think Lash very elegantly diffused any comparisons between kind of older millenarian social trends and and like quasi-religions and our kind of self-help therapeutic mindset today by saying, well, you know, those kind of past formations were at least uh, in theory, in, in rhetoric, concerned with the salvation of humanity, not with the salvation of like the individual yeah. um and as an admirer of Lausch, who was like very influenced by his series of cultural narcissism what i'm trying to work out now which i, I don't know if it'll happen is whether we've moved beyond the culture of narcissism into a kind of borderline society because i'm seeing less npd and more bpd like in a metaphorical cultural trend a, a thousand percent agree why, yeah. why do you and, think but, that is I'm always reminding you that health insurance, even great coverage, doesn't necessarily cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can get hit with deductibles, co-pays. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if emergency arises, the expense of a air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year, and it covers the entire household every day. When you're away from home, even, that's pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. For limited time as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. The holiday season, well, you can do something special for someone in your life. You give yourself a gift to raise your spirits. That's not just for the day, but for the whole year. Well, possibly eternally. Why not get going now? The holidays can be a tough time between family dynamics and racing from activity to activity. The cold, it's shorter days, darker weather. Having someone to talk to about your feelings can be a truly can be a gift. And as I've said repeatedly, I've been impressed with the professionals they have there. 
And I uh, sent family, friends, patients, and have been very satisfied with the services they provide. And there's no longer an excuse. It's all online, and you can change anytime you want. And it's this idea that you'd be stigmatized or embarrassed or run into somebody. You no longer have that excuse. If if you're not go doing, if you're not going to better help, there's something other than stigma preventing you from doing it. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched three million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, 100 percent online, as I said. Plus, it is affordable. Just fill out a questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It could not be simple. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist, no excuses. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Drew. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you physicians who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist, whether you're trying to, whatever it is, they're all, all the specialists and subspecialists are there. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting a delivery. We're used to using online apps. Why not access to physicians? And you can find and review local doctors, verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments. And when you walk into that doctor's office, now you're all set to see someone in your network who you've selected. They get you. Go to ZocDoc.com, find the doctor that is right for you and book an appointment in person or remotely even, whatever it is that works for you. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc and let it be your go-to when you need to find and book a quality physician. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Drew and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That is ZocDoc.com slash Drew, ZocDoc.com slash Drew. Well, I guess my question for you, the the interesting thing is, you know, again, Lash borrowed very heavily from from Kernberg's psychoanalytic theories to derive his social theories. But he was writing during the time of kind of at the end of the post-war consensus, which was a time of, you know, relative peace and prosperity. And people often say, well, that he saw everything and predicted everything, but he wasn't like a genius or a Mm -hmm. clairvoyant. He was merely a careful observer. Yes. And there's a lot you can glean from careful observation, which is like a skill or faculty that seems to be also increasingly on the wane. I'm, but I'm curious, um, you know, as a as a person who's worked in psychiatric hospitals, why you think the cluster B personality started to dominate child child trauma, overt trauma, physical abuse, sexual but, abuse, abandonment. But it doesn't would, everybody no have some or, or no not like why not like, why do people not like what was now going on have then more. But why do people now have more childhood trauma than people in the past? It is the nearest I could tell. And again, I, I, I have young, you know, thirty-year-olds and forty-year-olds are beginning to talk about this now, uh, about how much they were. I mean, there were multiple factors at work. And, and by the way, I do think there are other historical periods. I think revolutionary, pre-revolutionary France, in particular, okay. was was highly borderline. Genevieve, you know, Genevieve, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Napoleon's sort of wife, Genevieve. What's her name? Ge- Ge- uh. Uh, we're gonna have to. Oh shit! What, what's her I'm name? gonna Google Napoleon. Napoleon wife, wife. Uh, Ge- Ge- Genevieve. I'm not getting that right. In any event, she was borderline as fucking hell, severely Josephine. borderline. Josephine. There we go. Josephine was severely borderline. Read about her sometime. What a woo! And and she was representative of her time. 
There was a lot of that. And, and by the way, there was kind of a gyno-fascism that went on for about 100 years in France where women were leading some of the attacks, really crazed women who started killing people. And there was a lot of childhood trauma. I mean, just read Rousseau's confessions. All he uh-huh. he he carried along this one woman and just raped her regularly. She had five children. She forced her to leave them all on the steps of a of an orphanage. Most French children ended up on an orphanage. Few survived. Those that did survive, severe childhood trauma, cluster B disorders. Right. And, and so, but I, I guess my suspicion also is that. Um, Childhood trauma and child abuse has, you know, existed um, since the dawn of time. You could argue was maybe even more severe back in the day before children were viewed as, you know, autonomous, subjective people in their own right. But I think it's a question of context. Like the example that I always give is if you live in a village where corporal punishment is a typical discipline strategy for parents, um, that is arguably less traumatic than if you live on a cul-de-sac where you're the only one whose parents are beating you. No, not my experience. Okay. Not my, my experience is if the, if the child fears survival, that there, mm-hmm. there's, there's a chance they, that this will, you know, their bodily integrity will be harmed. That's it. Uh-huh. That is all you need. Uh, and and those kids run away from home typically. You know, the kids that lay, leave home and stay away, that's what's going on in the home. But the sexual abuse part was I think the part that was the, – the abandonment, the neglect and the sexual abuse part were the things that were I think new and at a, at a mm-hmm. high pitch. And I'll explain that in just a second. I, I, I just want to – what was the other thought I was just having? There's so many things occurring to me all at once as we talk yeah, about yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, I think, oh, back, I mean, back. I, think, I was. I started yeah. ruminating about you know Greece and Rome and the uh-huh. abuse of children then. But look at what you had. This was an unbelievably violent time. Unbelievable. If you really examine what was going on, violence is what kept everything in check or mm-hmm. was acted out. Extreme violence. And so I think the the. The, that's what kind of diminished some of the acting out behaviors uh, associated with those periods of history as, as we right. became. Well, and I think also just the absence of therapeutic language and informational channels yeah. for, for even learning to talk about this kind of stuff. People just didn't have the, the receptors. Right. Those, um, they just put people in prison or they, killed, I, them, I or think they th- killed them. I think the unique um, thing about our time is our time is – as Lash says, is notable for its focus on mere survival. Mm. Mm. And I think that the mind, the inner life, the inner world of the narcissist is a, a world of, of mere survival, extreme striving and survivalism. Longing. Longing yeah. is the longing is the feeling that it's, some people describe narcissism as longing for the end of longing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, I was really struck by something that you said on our podcast, which is, you know, you were cautioning against using these terms in a pejorative way because narcissism is a state of extreme moral fatigue and psychological torment. I mean, it's a, it's really like a condition about that's about managing or postponing a confrontation with external reality to protect these internal fantasies of omnipotence. And I feel like this is the chief mental activity of the narcissist. It's extremely demanding, time consuming, 
a great source of inner turmoil. Yeah. And and if you need a fighter pilot, you want a narcissist alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That's who you want in that seat. Not, <laughs> not actively drinking, but you want somebody who is a thrill-seeking and uh, has an inflated sense of themselves and indestructibility and put them in that seat. That's Maybe I should train as a fighter pilot. There you go. I, I, you, keep, <laughs> you always refer to yourself as narcissistic. I, no, I, no, don't, no. I don't experience you that way. No, no. I'm like a narcissist light in that I have many of the preconditions that would lead to this personal, personality well, type. But I think but narcissists are also like categorized by like their lack of uh, guilt and remorse, which I have in spades. And I, the other interesting point about that personality that's very interesting, that, that's interesting to me in light of the kind of anhedonic depressive quality of, mm-hmm. of a lot of people today is that the, the depression differs in its quality and quantity in its quality in the sense that normal people's depression is limited to it, it or is based on real guilt or remorse. Whereas the, the narcissist experiences depression as kind of like an impotent rage or a sense of helplessness or hopelessness. Right. That's right, so, diffuse and directed at no one in particular. Right. We call it free floating. And, and, exactly. And, yeah. and that's because they're disconnected from their primary affect. They have, So they have – they don't have a – What does cl- that mean? So one of the theories – I don't know if I can explain this to you, but there's a guy named Peter Fonagy that has a really good little construct. He invented the term mentalizing or mentalization in terms of how mm. we construct – there's a lot of energy uh, in in interpersonal psychoanalysis on trying to figure out how humans normally and effectively develop emotional regulation. Uh And it turns out we do that through exchange with primarily mom, thousands and thousands of little exchanges through this Mm -hmm. socio-emotional exchange system that is a deeply embedded system in our brainstem through the vagus nerve, through our facial musculature and our vocal prosody and our ear even is involved with it. And we learn essentially that when we have a feeling, other, people's can, other people can understand it and they can reflect mm-hmm. it back to us through signals on their face, this socio-emotional exchange system. And those okay. signals on the face give us an, a second-order understanding of our primary emotional state. Mm-hmm. And that's how we connect to our primary emotional state. That's how we build the regulatory system around it. It's how we understand it. But if you're not given, if you're not f- feeling felt thousands of times a day, uh, you start to well, – you don't develop a robust connection to that those primary emotions. They're off in the distance somewhere. But feelings come right. out of the body and narcissists can't really have feelings in, in a robust and- sense. And would you say that you also compensate by having maybe like exaggerated or attenuated um, like fantasy or emotional fantasies or landscapes in your mind that don't necessarily reflect reality? I mean, I think that that's what's meant when when people kind of casually say that the narcissist lacks empathy. Like what is empathy when you really think about it in, in, in the kind of just like purely mechanistic biological sense? Well, mechanistically, it is having robust connection to primary affect, the feelings that come out of the body. And then the the final evolutionary developmental process is being able to be attuned to other people and to feel other people's feelings without contagion or consumption. 
And when you and that's how boundaries are developed. And as you know, narcissists have terrible boundaries, and yes. so they they don't experience other people's feelings, particularly in certain situations. They can't empathize with them because they don't even feel their own affect. Feelings have sort of whenever you hear somebody say feelings are overrated, feelings have no meaning. Right. You hear that you know, it's a guy named Paul. Oh, what's his name? A Yale psychiatrist, psychologist that keeps saying that. And every time he says it, I think, oh, well, that's narcissism. That's it. You know, complete. That's it. Uh, and it it is and, – and empathy is the highest order of the human brain function. It's really when everything is integrated with the body and the embeddedness of our feeling states and regulated, that's when we have the capacity for empathy. And otherwise, we don't. We're either we right. can we can have contagion, we can feel it, but it's really our feelings in contagion that are mobilized, not an appreciation of really what another person is feeling. But let me just right. I want to go I want to go all the way back to your 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 observation okay. about the more borderline tendencies now. Yes, yeah. So so isn't it uh interesting that the the primary in addition to a preoccupations with abandonment the other primary phenomenon of borderline is an unstable sense of self as always i want to remind you about my friend jordan harbinger and his podcast I was thinking about it. I'm actually jealous of some of the guests he gets. First of all, Jordan's a great guy. He's an interesting guy. He speaks multiple languages, had crazy life experience, legal training, been a, been a, actually kidnapped himself. And so he brings all that to the conversation at the Jordan Harbinger Show. And the guests he has are really sometimes historically important guests. I, I do recommend you take a look at not just what is up presently on the podcast, but go through his library and you can get a ton of information. There's always something there. For you, he pulls things out of his guests that are applicable in everyone's life. Look, podcasts are supposed to expand your understanding of the world, and The Jordan Harbinger Show does that. I enjoy the show. I think you will, too. Search The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, it is The Jordan Harbinger Show. One minute I'm a he, one minute I'm a they, one minute I'm a them, whatever, I'm a she. That's all considered developmentally. I mean throughout my training, it was always like that you had to get through those phases to get a cohesive sense uh-huh. of who you are. You don't leave yourself in an unstable sense of yourself that's fluctuating constantly. That What an unpleasant state to be in. Right. And I think that there's a tendency now to attribute those incredibly – unpleasant experiences and feelings to like external factors or forces of oppression um, versus uh, looking inward. And the, you know, I think about this metaphorically, you know, we live in a, in a global open borders world that, that is literally increasingly borderless and um, porous, Mm -hmm. which is why a conflict such as the Russia Ukraine conflict has such resonance because Mm -hmm. I think it's an attempt to, um, turn back the clock or at least provide an alternate model to, um, you know, something like liberal democracy. Uh, but isn't a borderless world just a borderline world? Yeah. Boundaryless world. Yeah, and I think unsta- like back to what, back to what you were saying, um, it's very interesting because, um, that we, I, I've noted just a lot of, um, abuses and overuses of this idea of empathy in like, contemporarily popular like cultural discourse where when people 
say empathy, what they really mean is contagion. Yes, 100%. That's exactly right. Because most people are incapable of good, of real full and empathy. Actually empathizing, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the um, big insights – I took I just Amazon Prime this Kernberg book. I'm just now cracking it, but I've been like reading it all night. His his stuff is hard to penetrate. It's it's hard. That's why that's why why I give you that historical sweep that Mitchell provides. Right. I think it'll make better sense to you if you have the whole evolution in front of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I literally used my um, my hour with the shrink yesterday to make him to mansplain (laughs) um, psychoanalytic terminology to me by pretending it was you know quote relevant to my childhood parental relationship, which is very sociopathic behavior. So I apologize. You're just you're just uh, intrigued. Yeah, um, but I want to. I guess I would stress that that narcissism, as it was you know originally understood, is in and of itself a borderline condition, which is like not to be confused with actual borderline personality well, there was actually, I don't want to lose any yes and there was yeah. actually debate in the 1850s whether narcissistic personality disorder existed it was so unusual yeah so in Freud's time it was all histrionic that that presented themselves and they were rare they were uh-huh. medical oddities you know that they would come in with uh, you know histrionic uh, hysterical conversions and things and uh, yeah. it, it's just you know <laughs> the it, Let's talk about the historical sweep for a second. You asked me, yeah. you know, how did this happen? You know, what do I think about how it happened? Because, because when you know, I I read Lash literally on my drive home from college, right? So it's 1980, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, I, these are lived experiences for me, both in terms of what the 70s were all about, what Lash was reading, writing about, and what I experienced working in a psychiatric setting. So these are lived experiences, and my lived experience at the time was that we went through this thing called the sexual revolution. It it came out of a massive uncoupling from our biology that mm-hmm. had never happened in human history, which was A, we could control pregnancy, and yeah. B, we could effectively treat sexually transmitted diseases. Uh-huh. So before that, throughout human history – Parents who understood the incredibly powerful drives that were coming on during adolescence would scare the shit out of their kids because they didn't want them to get pregnant and they didn't want them to die of a urinary tract infection. I mean, think about that. If you just had <laughs> just plain old UTI, you'd yeah. get nef- you'd get pyelonephritis and die. If you had gonorrhea, it would progress. You would get pelvic inflammatory disease. If you had syphilis, you got neurosyphilis. I mean, it was just deadly. Sexually transmitted right. diseases were all deadly. And all of a sudden, we could treat them, and that happened in the late 50s, and then in the 60s, the pill, and then we could control control contraception. And that uncoupled us from our biology in a way that had never been done before. It came in an era of free love, which, by the way, free love was the was the rallying cry of pre-revolutionary France, all the uh, – what do they call the parties they had in France in those days? The uh, – oh, shit – they they had, yeah, they had these sort of gatherings every night and they'd get wasted and free love. Everything was free love. Um, and free love became really free love in, in our era uh, when, it, hey, you just – sex is no big deal. And really, this was preached. Men and women are exactly the same in terms of their sexual uh-huh. drive and desire and their experience of their sexuality is precisely the same and society created it uh, created the differences and uh, we're going to we're going to we're going to literally in the 70s you know when i heard uh, weinstein talk about his thinking in the 70s and i thought yeah 
That's how people thought. They were thought they were helping women overcome the resistances that society had put on them so they right. could just enjoy their sexuality like a man did. Holy fuck. I mean, think about that. Gary, Technoval was the party you were looking for. What is it? Technoval. No, no, they no. were just like just gatherings. It's Large just, free party is, is yeah. how it's referred in to. France, here. In France? Free party is how it's referred to kind of here, and then it says in France they use that other name. In the, in the, 1850, in the, in the 1750s? 1750 France, what I'm talking about. They just were salons. They were just called salons. They were called salons. I was going to go with salons, but I yeah. thought that would sound. Uh, no, you thought Drew should be able to think uh-uh. of that word. Why the fuck can't he think about it? <laughs> That's what you thought. <laughs> Why can't that asshole like, remember that no, word? No, weren't they doing uh, intellectual discourse no no read josephine's the history sometime uh yes there was that because you know the rousseau would show up at the salons and they liked to and so would and so would benjamin franklin but it was they got horny off of that it was on it was on yes it was on in any event um uh so where was I getting forward? So 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 sexuality was unrestrained. Women and men are exactly the same. And you know what? Children are sexual beings. They're exactly the same <laughs> as adults. Right. That just adults think of them differently. They're the same. And if and you literally will see people in the and I used to see this in the hot psychiatric hospital where the adults would blame the children for the sexual abuse. The child wanted to. He had seduced me. What was I supposed to do? And I was just ex- helping that child express his sexuality. I mean, he's twelve, but in a year he'll be at puberty. And what's the? This is how people were thinking. It was yeah. so insane, and I heard it a lot. I mean, and that's it, still how they're thinking, though they wouldn't admit it. But go on anyway. Well, sometimes they think that way to justify their fucked up behavior, not to, to yeah. defend themselves against realizing they're destroying someone. But it was an acceptable th- thought process back then. And women were exploited, children were exploited, and it was just and, – and at the same time, we have uh, women entering the workforce and no accommodation for what the child sort of um, – child-rearing practices ought to be to accommodate that. And I'm not at all taking aim at uh, women in the workforce. I'm just saying we didn't accommodate it. And so children were just left alone. And that went on for 30 years, the, the latchkey phenomenon. It, be, it developed, had its own name. It's called latchkey. Mm-hmm. You know, kids would not see their parents till dinner time, And mm-hmm. the, the, the key was under the mat and the kid let himself in and if, you know, did whatever they did. And it was not good because the, the more disturbed children ran amok. So uh, children abused other children. There was a lot of child-on-child sexual abuse. And there was a pandemic of this. And it mm-hmm. went on for a good 20, 20, 30 years. And then now we're seeing the aftermath of that. And then all alongside, of course, there's abandonment because you no know, one was home. And then there was the usual physical abuse that has gone on forever. And, uh, and I, you know, when, when somebody came in to see me for treatment, there was a, you know, I dealt with very, very sick drug addicts. There's a 100% probability of some combination of overt childhood abuse. And 100, well, the vast majority of my patients would deny that they had childhood trauma. I'd always mm-hmm. they'd always come in with I had a normal happy childhood. I don't know, you know. Okay, so I'd have to I'd have to literally scroll through every detail. So were you left alone for long alone for long periods of time? 
Well, sure, everybody was. That was that was you know, my mom works and she's amazing. She supported us. She did what she had to do. Uh huh. And then how about when you acted out and uh, you had some you know behavioral problems? Well, she disciplined me. She disciplined. And I go and I go. What? She hit you? No, she didn't hit me. She disciplined me. Did she ever hit up, pick up an object and swing <laughs> and come after you? Well, it was one time she picked up an axe, but 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 she never. Well, yeah, she'd <laughs> always have a spoon, a spoon, and she'd hit me with that. And, yeah. and sometimes there are some dishes thrown. She yeah. disciplined me by making me have sex with stepdad. No, no, that never happened. <laughs> no, it was always discipline through overt yeah, physical right, abuse. Yeah, yeah. And then the sexual abuse, if it came in, went on with the again. Now we had no fault divorce, also, and so the the mm-hmm. women would bring the wolves into the house. And as you know, if um, if a someone non from the gene pool comes in, the probability of childhood abuse goes up drum many, many, many fold. And in a time when it was being encouraged, it's like, hey, whatever you're into, man, it happened a lot. So that's my perception historically of what was going on that has left its wake upon us now. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would add to that also that um, a lot of people think of this as an ideological issue i think of it as a technological issue um i would not um underestimate how much social media has contributed to this kind of um shift from the narcissist turn to the borderline turn in what sense um just i you know the way that you were trained to relate to others on social media is is profoundly different from yeah. how we have traditionally related to others throughout time. You're getting like um, high volume, like real time feedback on yourself at all times. Yeah. And, and, and I, I cannot imagine, I can't even yet figure out the impact of porn and social media. I, I yeah. can't imagine what that's going to do to us. Uh, it, it's, it's got to do something. Uh, I, right. And, and, I, and I feel bad for kids that, you know, came of age before we were really even aware what was going on. Imagine what yeah. they were exposed to. So that may be the next, you know, wave of all this, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think it's also interesting if you look at um, sexual liberation and women's liberation, these these movements, which I think take credit for a lot of uh, progressive developments in our culture often look to me like after the fact rationalizations um, for things like industrialized abortion and contraception, which legitimately freed women from certain biological hurdles or burdens, um, but also, you know, are not unanimously good and created a lot of problems in their way. Well, that that is the feature of major change, particularly on a biological level, right? You know, mm-hmm. we don't even know. We, one thing we didn't know back then was what's the impact of giving hormones to all these women? I mean, what is that going to change their personality? Going to change their intellect? Change their ability to find? We don't know. Massive experiment. <laughs> right. It reminds me of the vaccines a little bit. It's just a huge experiment on on, on people. Yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, it it has to have massive unintended consequences. It has to, and it did. I'm sure it did. And but it, but here's the problem. Just philosophically, it had. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take it away from people. I. I it, we had to do these things. <laughs> you, you know what I'm uh-huh. saying? It's just. I wish we could have done them better. And well, I guess I we never I, yeah. do. We never do. Right. No, I guess that's a the human condition. But I think that like, um, 
you know, uh, whenever I'm accused of being some sort of like uh, foaming at the mouth, right wing traditionalist ideologue who wants the return to um, the 1950s post-war consensus, I always say, well, it's not up to me, you know, not only um, are these things uh, undesirable, they're impossible. We can't go back. Right. We can't go back. And I I think, I suspect I speak for you if I say, I I want what's real to the human experience. That's all. It's not ideological, non-ideological. I want something that is embedded in the reality of what people experience, both interpersonally, both professionally, psychologically. What is actually, not what people say you ought to or what's ideologically expedient. All that is bullshit. I want what is real for humans, and let's and it's a it's a pragmatic point of view, and let's mm-hmm. support that and move that forward. Yeah, I mean, I would one hundred percent agree with you. I'm basically kind of a, a realist and a materialist in that way. I I feel like any um, good definition of of ethics, for example, has to come from um, the reality as it exists and your ability to to objectively appraise that ability yes or th- that reality to the you know to the best of your yes you so know, so that's why perfect yes. it's an imperfect craft but right. not not out of any kind of um utopian ideal that you're uh right right Vir- virtue virtue ethics from. have a place but there is actually an ethical uh, impulse that is de- embedded in our biology and evolutionary heritage simple what's enough. scary is is that i think um reality as an actually existing human relations are, are are becoming increasingly harder to come by because everybody can retreat into their um yeah. you know, so one man social media kingdom i i, I know I, I, and i and i do do think we will look at that the way we look at tobacco one day but not now mm-hmm. and not today because you and i are running out of time so let me suggest see ann and i met each other at the ear in gary Ear in or ear? It's called the ear in. Is that what it's called? <laughs> the ear in. I ear think in. it's like the oldest pub in New York. Yeah, and uh, Anna tackled me on the way out, and I almost fell on top of her table. <laughs> I, I threw myself at him. <laughs> but let's continue this conversation conversation at the ear in. Okay, let's go. Sure. Let's have a have a date. Let's bring spouses and whoever and others, and uh, let's go back there and uh, have it out at the table. One of those tables in the front of the bar because <laughs> um, that would be really fun. Uh, and then we can indulge ourselves right. and not worry about what other people or um, what listeners might think of what we're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. Um, well, I hope that um, we were able to put our impaired intellects, our online adult intellects together and like get to the bottom of something. My my only question for you, my last question, um, if I could have one, is – how do you treat borderline disorders? You don't. You you <laughs> you reduce the there. There's two things. Um, you reduce the borderline features in an individual with dialectical behavioral therapy. So you essentially okay. help build a sense of other people's minds, keeping other people's minds in mind when you are overcome by emotion. Which is constantly okay. with, and so you would say that uh, you know on a larger scale, it's about you know learning to appreciate other people's 
feelings and thoughts. And and I, you know, and on a large scale, things evolve how they evolve. Uh, I don't think there's a treatment per se. Generally, I, we were my wife and I were watching Jail Las Vegas last night. <laughs> and, and it was one after another mentally ill patient coming in there. We watched yeah. three hours of it. You're the best because you'll drop some like hardcore 1750s theoretical knowledge on me. And then you'll be like, I was watching 90 Day Fiance until three oh, in the morning. Oh, yeah. We do that shit too. And, and But it, it was one mentally ill person after another coming in there. And, and they all responded only to overwhelming force. And that is that is something I learned in a psychiatric hospital. When people's mm-hmm. brain aren't working right, they respond to show of force, and they feel better when they're contained. And unless we yeah. get to understanding that people need containment, they need custodial care, they need that it's it's not okay just to let people turn into raving maniacs that hurt themselves or die of fentanyl overdoses or pick yeah, up a machine. Everyone needs a conservatorship. Well, I don't want that. <laughs> but but that we need containment and that it's okay to do that and it is actually helpful and loving to do that. That we have to that's I think a, a an evolutionary move that we have to get to. And we will get there because it's the only thing that works and so people are eventually going to have enough of things as they are, and they'll move towards that. But Anna, I appreciate you being here again. It's the Red Scare podcast. Anna Kachian, it is at Anna, A-N-N-A-K-H-A-C-H-I-Y-A-N. Check her out there, and uh, good to talk to you again. Oh, no. What? Um, No, thanks. No, thank you for having me, and thanks for pronouncing and spelling my name correctly. Um, I will get back to my listeners uh, with the the, – knowledge that unfortunately there's no cure for bpd no but you can really (laughs) you can you can eliminate the borderline stuff and you can and you can live effectively and and you can you can be much happier and much more contained the the borderline-ness never goes away but the borderline stuff can be diminished dramatically does that make sense i i like by the way i like borderlines I, i get along great with them they they're just uh, their own worst they're enemy. Good and bad. They're good <laughs> and they're and they're difficult to be around. They're very difficult. Uh, and but it doesn't bother me personally. I just you know, I, I just feel for them. They're the one that seems to suffer in my world. So I, I don't have any judgment on on borderlineness or borderline disorder. Um, except that it sure hurts people. You know, they they hurt people accidentally, and it's tough on them. So, all right, well, listen, we'll we'll hurt people, hurt people, and we will continue this again at the ear end. I don't know, it's probably going to be December before I get back there, but uh, I will will hit you up, okay? Thank you, Dr. Drew. Great to talk to you. Have a good one. Thanks. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com we've got a trailer of our interview with molly bloom 
She ran infamous underground poker games that were attended by A-listers, mobsters, and eventually landed her in hot water with the FBI and used a lot of the tactics that she taught us here on the show. I went to L.A., got hired by this guy who said, I need you to serve drinks at my poker game. So I'm like, okay, great. But then Ben Affleck walks in the room and Leo DiCaprio and a politician that was very well recognized. And I had this light bulb moment that I just need to control this game because it has this incredible hold over these people. Then the feds got involved. And 10 days later, I get a call in the middle of the night. You need to come out with your hands up. I walk into my hallway. When my eyes adjusted to the high beam flashlights, I saw 17 FBI agents, semi-automatic weapons pointed at me. If you want to learn more about building rapport and generating the type of trust that Molly Bloom needed to run her multi-million dollar operation, check out episode 120 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.